Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another uh, Monday edition of our Facebook Live devotional. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it's also going to be on our podcast at uh, the Sovereign Hope Church podcast, which you could find um, in the iTunes uh, store or on Google Podcasts, or I believe it's on Spotify. Um, it is not in your local newspaper, so if you are looking for resources outside of that, uh, go ahead and grab that. You can also see the sermons there as well, and any other new resources that we uh, might drop in the future. Uh, good to be with you guys this morning as we are continuing through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, uh, what, what we kind of see is, is Nehemiah is, is picking up um, in kind of this third program of the exiles returning out of Babylon. And so you see in Ezra, we kind of see the first two uh, exiles return. We see the first group go back um, to be, build the temple. We see in Ezra, he's there to restore the worship at the temple. And now we see in Nehemiah go back and he's kind of restoring the civil aspect. The walls of the city are being built um, and the city's being populated. And so there's kind of these three waves. Each is doing something new. Uh, the restoration of the temple, the restoration of worship, and the restoration of the city. And all we're doing uh, in this and what I really want this to be is not necessarily uh, a Bible deep dive Bible study with me. I want to be just kind of opening up how I view this in the mornings when I'm looking at it with my devotionals. Um, this is also what we do on Wednesday at our Bible reading group. If you want to stop by at noon mountain time, um, that link will be on the Sovereign Hope Facebook page. It's also on the Sovereign Hope website as well. I would love to have you stop by for that. And so... What I want to do is we always uh, look three places when we're looking at a text devotionally, and this is rooted in actually um, exegesis. This is just principles of making observations, uh, 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 observation, interpretation, application. OIA is often what Bible study is boiled down to, and this is really just taking the top layer of that in the 15, 30 minutes you have in the mornings and trying to uh, kind of expedite that process before kids wake up or class starts, or you got to run to work. So I'm going to give a summary. We haven't, um, of just what's been going on in Nehemiah so far. It's going to be pretty quick. Um, so Nehemiah hears in chapter one, uh, he's in Susa. He hears that the, uh, uh, or he's in Babylon and he hears that, I think it's in Babylon. Is he in Babylon or Susa? Uh, I don't remember. Uh, anyway, you can go ahead and fact check me on that later. Um, hears that the city's in disarray and he, the king asks him what's wrong. He's the cupbearer to the king. He talks about the city, Jerusalem, how it needs walls. So the king sends Nehemiah and whoever wants to go with him to go rebuild the walls. And then you hear um, just the tension that's coming. Is there's real opposition um, to Israel rebuilding the city. There are other nations and other people who have settled into um, the promised land and into Jerusalem. And they don't want to see Jerusalem established as this Jewish city. And so there's all sorts of backbiting. There's all sorts of conniving. There's all sorts of threats and manipulation. And so you get to this uh, great passage in the middle of Nehemiah of the sword and trowel where the people are building the walls of Jerusalem. Um, and they've got their trowel, their, their tool they're using to build the wall on one hand. And they've got their sword in the other to defend from those who might attack. And so everything that's going on in Nehemiah, kind of similar to what we're seeing in First and Second Peter on Sunday mornings is done under this kind of cloud of oppression. Uh, they have no idea what might happen, but they're being constantly vigilant in their obedience to God. And so uh, in Nehemiah 6 on Friday, the wall is finally finished. Um, Nehemiah had surveyed out everything. He had seen what was broken, and now they'd finished the wall. And now we pick up in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. 
And so if you haven't had a chance to read these yet, I'll give you a brief summary. Um, what happens is in the first part of chapter 7, uh, he appoints Hananiah, uh, who is the guy who alerted Nehemiah that he should come back to Jerusalem, uh, of the castle charge over Jerusalem. Uh, Hananiah was a good man. And then we see that uh, the walls were built, but the city itself was still pretty sparse. There wasn't a lot of people living in it, and there wasn't a lot of officials or soldiers in it. And so he actually had to institute guards from the city to stand watch on the wall, and, or, and those guards from the city, which we'll come back to, um, were just inhabitants of Jerusalem. There's ordinary people that were set up to guard the walls of the city and to guard outside their houses. And then we get this list of names, and I'll come um, back to this in a second, this list of names, uh, and this is really similar to what we saw in Ezra 2. In fact, if you remember back to Ezra 2, if you've been reading in the F260 Bible reading plan, uh, chapter 7 verses 5 through 65, or five through 73 is almost an exact copy of Ezra chapter 2, um, which shows you how meticulous the Jewish people were of keeping records, which helps us actually when it comes to understanding the validity and the history of scripture itself. Um, and so we see this list of exiles come back because the city is sparse. And so now we see this list of names, and that's going to be really important in a second. And then we get to chapter 8, and what happens is Ezra. Uh, so we haven't heard from Ezra in the biblical storyline. Uh, it's been just a week for us as we're reading it, but it's been roughly 13 years in the Old Testament timeline. And now uh, Nehemiah brings Ezra back, and they begin to reread the law. And there is this repentance and this joy and this sorrow that comes. And just like how um, when Ezra first read the law, the people were convicted of their intermarriage. They weren't obeying the law of Moses in terms of their morality. Um, now that we see that there's aspects of the law of Moses, specifically um, the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles that they're not keeping. And at the end, they read the law and they realize they're not keeping this. And so they um, want to start keeping the law. They want to start obeying it. And so really what we're seeing in this text um, is a story of revival. Revival is coming to the people who are sitting under the cloud of oppression and wanting to obey God, and it's coming at the hand of God's word and God's faithful people. And so that's what we see in chapters 7 and 8. And so what I want to do is uh, go through our three points today um, in looking up. That is, what does this passage show us I don't think I told us our three questions yet. Maybe I did. Uh, looking up, what does this teach us about God? Looking in, what does this teach us about ourselves, about humanity, about our hearts? And looking out, how does this change the way we live? And so when it comes to looking up, what does this passage teach us about God, about the Trinity, about redemption and the gospel? Um, I want to start by actually addressing this list of names here. Now, uh, I want to level with you and say that as a pastor, when I encounter lists of names in the Old Testament, I have a similar response that I'm sure you do. And that is, what am I doing and why is this here? Like, we, we it, to be honest, on the best case scenario, we might say, all right, this is God's word. Why is this here? And we start looking at names and maybe we're cross-referencing the names and where these show up in scripture. And we're trying to find why they're being grouped the way they're being grouped. And sometimes we just end up pulling out our hair. Or in a worst case scenario, we say, okay, when does the list of names end? okay, uh, it ends, ends chapter 7 and verse 73, so I'm just going to start in 8-1, right? We're all prone to one of those two things. And so one thing um, that's really helpful when we encounter a list of names is looking at the context and asking ourselves, why are they giving this list of names? Well, we just saw um, in chapter 7, verse 3, uh, that the city, or verse 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. 
And that's kind of what segues into Nehemiah finding this list of those who had returned from the exile in Babylon. And so why is this list relevant? Because Nehemiah is doing a sort of census. And so he's gathering all these people who have officially come back from Babylon. And now with this group of people, they're going to be placed in their cities and they're going to be placed in their homes and they're going to be placed in their positions and the economy is going to be restored around it. The community is going to be restored around it. And so in essence, um, he's this group of people shows that there is a people in Jerusalem and that Nehemiah is doing the work of calling these people from wherever they may have been when they came back from exile. He's calling them back to their land, back to their towns, back to their houses to help solve the problem um, that exists in chapter 7 verse 4 and uh, what we see here in looking at this verse is we see God's faithfulness in this God is bringing people out and bringing them back home and from a broad perspective we really see three exoduses in scripture and all three of those are due to the people's sin and God's wonderful faithfulness right in the, in Exodus, um, the Exodus event, in the end of Genesis, we see what causes Exodus is uh, there's this corporate sin that happens that affects the people of Israel, right? And so the brothers, there's no corporate people. There's just the brothers um, of Israel, uh, the 12 brothers, and there's jealousy and there's infighting. And so they sinfully sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And so they are taken to Egypt. He's taken to Egypt because of their sin. And then God redeems them by bringing that family to Egypt to be saved from the famine. But then in Egypt, the people grow. It's not the 12 brothers anymore. Now you have the people of Israel and the 12 tribes. And yet because of the sin of their forefathers, um, they are enslaved in Egypt. But God graciously brings them out of their sin, brings them out of their slavery by his grace through the Red Sea. And then we see in um, what we've been looking at in the Old Testament timeline with the exile to Babylon, it is also because of their sin. But this time it's not like individual specific heads that are responsible for it. The whole people are sinful. Sure, there's this remnant, but on a whole, um, the people of Israel, the tribe of Judah, uh, are pervasively sinful. They have shrines set up under every tree and on every hill. They're not repenting and worshiping God. They're intermarrying with other people. They're not keeping the law. And so God brings them into captivity in Babylon. And here we see that God is faithful to, again, bring them out. Our sin enslaves us, but God's grace saves us. And so here God is bringing his people out of slavery um, in Babylon, out of exile, because of his grace, despite of their sin. And then we see in the New Testament, there's this third exodus, right? And that is not a physical exodus from a physical Babylon or a physical Egypt. It is a spiritual exodus that Jesus goes through the waters of the grave to bring his people out of slavery to sin. And God is so immensely faithful to do that. And what great hope that has for us as those who know uh, how we cater to empty slave masters, how we often sin and act in ways that demand judgment, but to look to Christ and to see that he is the one who brings us out. And we have seen him, his, uh, himself as faithful to do that throughout scripture, whether it's in the Exodus, whether it's in Nehemiah and the returning exiles, God is faithful to bring us out of the mess of our sin through his faithful servants, be it Moses, be it Nehemiah, be it most ultimately in Jesus. And so we see God's faithfulness in bringing these people out. And so when I see that list of names, that's what I see. Why is this important? Because it's showing that God is faithful to solve all the problems that the people have. And that is true in our own life as well. Um, I also see just this connection. I'm just going to touch on this briefly. We saw in Esther 
um, as well. Uh, we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We confess that God is sovereign. He is in control of all things, but that doesn't mean that we are not responsible actors. You see this in 7 verse 5. Nehemiah is talking. He says, Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy and those who came first, and I found written in it, and then it goes into the long list of names. And so God stirs Nehemiah's heart, and God stirs our hearts in many ways. But we are faced with a decision, just like Nehemiah, what do I do with that stirring? Do I say, eh, who really wants to go look for a book of genealogies? Who wants to go call on a lot of names? Are we willing to act on it? God stirred in Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah was willing to act on it by going and finding the genealogy, going and reading it, going finding the people and calling them back. And so in, in our lives, um, we need to understand that God is immensely sovereign. And it's actually because he's sovereign that we are able to act. Because if everything in life was dependent upon us, if we were the sovereign in our lives, then we'd be terrified to act, wouldn't we? Because we'd feel like we'd be messing up some great plan that is potentially there. But when God is sovereign, we can rest in our actions that we actually get to work with God, with somebody who's able to control not only the events of our lives, but the events of all of human history. And we are no longer prone to fear, um, nor to a false sense of importance, because we understand that we are working under the banner of a good God who is leading his world to redemption through Jesus Christ. So that's what I saw in looking up. Um, I'd love to hear if you're on Facebook and you had some time this morning, you go ahead and comment what you saw in terms of looking up, if that's different from what I saw. Uh, but now I want to look in. And there's three things I want to just touch on quickly here uh, that I saw first. So looking in, what does this teach us about ourselves, um, our response to the gospel, things like that. Uh, in 7 verse 3, I, uh, I see what I call a common call to arms, right? And so then I said, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut the doors and the bars. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some of their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. And here we see, uh, because there's this lack of military presence in Israel, uh, they're appointing common people to stand guard. Common people are being called to participate in the protection of the city. And I see this, um, you, you draw this all the way out to the new people of God in the New Testament of the church. And we see this common call to arms for the whole church. That there is, there are officials, and we see that even here in Nehemiah. There is Nehemiah, there is Ezra, and there are pastors, and there are elders, and there are deacons. But as a whole, um, redemption calls the inhabitants of the city to stand guard. It calls all of us to participate in the work of the church, the defense of the faith, the protection of others. And so Christianity is not a hierarchy where you just get to, to shirk your responsibility to somebody else. It actually calls us um, by demands of the threats that are in the world and by demands of the, the conversion we have to participate at a common level in the fight for the faith and in the work of ministry. Um, Second, we see the mixed emotions of redemption. We see this in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 8. It says this, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, 
for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And so here we see this, this intermixing where the law is being read and these people are grieving. Um, why are they grieving? Probably because they see they don't particularly match up to the perfect standard the law had given. And yet God was calling them back um, in that. And so they're reading this law and they're grieving. And I love the work of the priests, right? What do the Levites do? They go to calm their people um, by saying, be quiet, this day is holy, do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And when we encounter the gospel, we are going to be prone to all sorts of emotions. The gospel does stand for what a terrible, wretched person you are. Uh, it stands for all of the, the worst things that you encounter in your heart. And that you're not just bad in your heart. You're not just bad towards others. You are bad towards the cosmic God of the world. And we see that we don't match up to who Jesus is. When we see how wonderful he is and what our sins caused for him, there ought to be a sense of grief. And yet, um, we see that God is gracious to turn our mourning into joy when we see that it was for his joy, right? The joy of the Lord is your strength. It was for his love for us because he desired to, that he set forth to redeem a broken people. God loves us even in that. And so when we encounter redemption, we are going to be prone to just, sometimes we might have empty rejoicing, and, and we might think we're good with God without seeing the nature of our sin. And that needs to be corrected. But sometimes all we do is we grieve because of our sin, but we don't see the grace of God. But there's this tension of saying, hey, eat fat food, which means stop starving yourself as an act of penance. Um, put on good clothes. Send portions to those who have not. Rejoice for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so in the gospel, we get to hold those two tensions um, together and we get to live in light of that. And the chief emotion of the Christian is not necessarily sorrow over sin, but it is the joy that you are a sinner saved by God. And so when we encounter redemption um, and we, when you're working with your friends who are maybe new converts or uh, hearing the gospel for the first time, we'll, we're going to encounter seasons of walking through the mess of our sin. But when we see what Jesus has done, then we're able to rejoice in that. Uh, and God calls us to rejoice. It is a command in scripture that we as Christians rejoice in the goodness of the Lord. Jesus at the end says, um, come into the joy of your master. And that kind of leads into this second thing we see here, or third thing. We see a common call to arms. We see the mixed emotions of redemption we have in our hearts. We also see the privilege of scripture. Something that is central in this text is uh, Ezra's reading of the law. They came together in order to study the words of the law. And then in verse um, 18, it says, And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. And, and central to this reading of the law, there was this revival. He says um, in verse 9, uh, And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. And from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And so there is this celebration of this keeping of the tabernacles that hasn't been present in hundreds of years. Um, and, and it's all centered on, and it's all due to the wonderful power of God's word to change hearts and call us to repentance. And we see that in script, like what we have in our Bible, what we have in Nehemiah's list of names is the living and abiding word of God, which interacts with us and calls us back to right action and right relationship with God. And so what I love in this text um, is, is seeing the privilege uh, of all of that. And what's interesting is I always love 
hearing kind of the history of translation, um, you know, there's coming out of the Middle Ages, uh, English becomes a dominant speaking language in much of the world, but the Bible was reserved for the priests, the clerical Catholic priests, and they read it in Latin, so the common person couldn't actually read God's word. But in 1539, um, Henry VIII authorized uh, what was called the Great Bible, which drew a lot from the Tyndale New Testament that was written. But why was this Great Bible important? Well, it was important for two reasons. Um, one, it was the first English Bible that was authorized to be read in the worship service. But then second, um, the legislation that went along with it that came from Crom uh, Oliver Cromwell said that this book must be big. It's got to be a big book, and it's got to be in a place where the church can come to read it. Um, and so each church uh, just got one great Bible. It was great because it was massive. It was a huge book. And uh, what would happen is on a Sunday when the priest would get up to preach from it, um, the people would be so shaken and so emotional to actually hear God's word in their own language that they could understand it, that while the pastor was preaching, uh, people would come up and try to read the Bible over his shoulder. And so actually what happened was they had to to install these, you know, 16th century security guards to keep people from coming up and crowding the pastor while he's preaching because they were so desperate to hear God's preached word. And how what a privilege it is for us to have so many Bibles in, in so many English-speaking translations, all of which are called to rend our hearts to this God who saves us. But the most miraculous thing that happens in this text comes in verse 12. It says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Anyone can read scripture. Anyone can hear it. And yet, it is a miracle when we understand it. And this makes me think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, speaking of Jews. He says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, whenever they read the old covenant, that is the law, what they're reading right here in, in Nehemiah, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their own hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Have you ever had a moment like Ezra 8 verse 12, where you rejoice? And so what do they do in light of this? They ate and drank. They sent portions to those who had not, and they rejoiced. So there was personal joy, there was corporate worship, there was corporate good. Why did all of this happen? Because they were able to understand what was being spoken. And for us to understand what was being spoken, uh, we turn to Christ. It is, in, it is Jesus who lifts the veil from our eyes to see God's wonderful grace. And that's really what Nehemiah and Ezra are reminding the people of. That's why they're calling them to joy in the midst of covenant breaking is because they're resting in God's grace, which meets its fullest picture in Jesus who fulfills the law for us. And so that we would understand that is not a sign of our intellect. It's a sign of Jesus' wonderful grace to tear a veil off of our eyes so that we might say, we understand this. We see that this is not a book of morality, but it is a story of redemption meant to saturate our hearts. Do we stand in awe at what we understand because of Jesus? And so I pray that uh, that's something that ruminates in your heart even today and this week as you read God's word, um, that even when we don't understand the particulars or the historical context of the Old Testament, that we understand at the broad level that this is a story of God's redemption of his people and Jesus is the miracle of all miracles. Praise God that he has given us eyes to see 
in Jesus Christ. Uh, in looking out, something that I see in light of this privilege of Scripture um, is a text that most people uh, who are preachers kind of look to as a really helpful and binding text for them. So this is Nehemiah 8, verse 8. And this is where we see the, the, the precedent of God's proclaimed word. And this has two implications for us here when it comes to living, looking out. How does this change the way we live? So it says this, they read from the book. What is the book? From the law of God clearly. And they gave sense so that the people understood the reading. So depending upon your translation, it says they read and they explained it to the people so that they could understand the reading. And so there's two things going on. One, they're translating because it's written in a different language. But additionally, they're also giving sense. They are interpreting it and they are helping them understand it. And so what we see here is really the basis of what we at Sovereign Hope and in kind of the culture of the day call expository preaching. Um, what they're doing is they're not saying, hey, you know, these people need to be strengthened. They need to be called back to community. Let's think of how we can get a wonderful sermon series on community and get these to these people. No, they get God's word and they place God's word at the center. And then it's their job to explain that. And God's word has this effect of accomplishing what God's word has promised to do. And so I see two, two things here. Uh, one for me, when I'm reading this, because this is an overflow of my devotions, is I see the importance um, of me doing this well. We see in the New Testament um, that there are approved workmen who are able to um, rightly understand and interpret God's word. And so I pray that when I'm looking at a text, I'm just reading a text and helping people get the sense of what God is doing. You guys don't want the sense from my life. I don't have many good senses. I don't have many good ideas. And I really don't. Um, one thing in being a younger pastor is I realize that, um, that if I'm just comparing my unique insight on life, I am so limited. I've had a relatively easy life. I've lived in Missoula most of my life. There are men older than me, far more experienced than me, who have great insight into life. But what I do have is God's word. And um, I realize that I'm in a unique place. I'm just relying on that. When I encounter my weaknesses and my own limitations, to give sense to what God has given in Scripture is sufficient for God's people. And so am I one who trusts that God's word, rightly interpreted and explained to God's people, is the best gift that I can give them? on a pulpit on Sunday mornings. So that's for me. Not many of you um, are preachers in this sense, but I want to talk to you if you're not a preacher, uh, that this does have implications for you. And it has implications in two ways. One, are you able to do this? Uh, on Sunday, uh, yesterday, I told people in our church that if they struggle with reading a Bible, I would expect them to be able to go to one of our members and ask them for help in reading scripture. And then that would be great. It might not look like uh, you know, reading the Bible with uh, one of the elders or reading a Bible with someone who's been a Christian 15 years longer than you. But we ought to, as Christians, because we see Jesus, the veil, the, the one who lifts the veil, we ought to be able to help others read the Bible in a way where we can make sense of it, where we can help explain. When we're looking at the law, what do we see? We see the righteousness that Jesus gives to us by faith. We see that God cares about our morality. Um, and we see that, that he has set forth to give us rules that lead us to good. And ultimately, that good is found in Jesus Christ. And so are you able to do the work of reading God's word and giving the sense of it? Can you explain in your devotions to someone at your community group what God is doing in it, what he's teaching you, and why that? Why is that important? It's important because it, it affects the whole community. This brings joy. This brings reformation. This brings revival um, to God's church. God's word and the, the communication of it is the seedbed for revival. And the Holy Spirit uses that for wonderful things. Uh, and so 
first in looking at, are you able to do that? Are you working and being able to communicate what the Bible's communicating to you? Um, but then secondly, are you willing to hear this? And uh, this is, I'm guessing that if you're watching or listening to this, um, I might be preaching to the choir here, but there is something uh, ordinary, profound, and essential to hearing God's word proclaimed um, and to hearing men who are broken, um, who are weak, and who are fallible to give a sense of it, to help other people do it. And so I try to, to keep this, even as a guy who's, who's primarily the one preaching in the context of our church, I'm constantly looking to put myself under the teaching of other people, whether that's in listening to podcasts or reading older sermons by guys like um, Charles Spurgeon or um, J.C. Ryle. Um, I want to have other men help explain scripture to me uh, because I need it. I need help. I need to sit under God's word. And so a great application of this is when you come to church on Sundays to pray that God would accomplish this ends through the same word. The wonderful thing is you are doing, when we sat through Deuteronomy as a church, we were literally living inside of Ezra 8 verse 8. We were reading from the book of the law and we were giving sense to it. And so we are participating in this wonderful thing which God has used throughout history to rend hearts and to bring revival. And so I pray that we are able to do that as a church where we understand um, the significance of God's preached word as the basis for God accomplishing what he wants to accomplish in the hearts of his people and in the church of his people. That's what I saw today um, in Ezra 7 and 8. Um, I appreciate uh, you guys stopping by to, to listen to this. I always appreciate uh, this these kind of checks and balances force me to make sure that I'm actually doing this uh, in the mornings and thinking it through, and it's always rewarding. And I'm so grateful for the privilege of Scripture and the wonder of God's proclaimed Word. So let me pray, and then we will let you guys get rolling. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your Word. Um, we'll see in Second uh, Peter here in a couple weeks. Um, on Sunday morning, that Peter saw you transfigured on the mountain. He saw you in all your radiant glory, and yet he's, he's, he says, we have something more certain than that, the prophetic word of God. And so, Lord, I pray that as we read through Nehemiah and we see the responses that come from the reading of God's word, that our hearts and our lives will respond to God's word, which is a story of his faithfulness to bring people out of slavery into salvation through Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.